appreciate that we meet together in this place and the great freedom and the privilege we have enjoying uh, what Christ is doing in our lives. Uh, you know, one of the first acts of power that parents have when they have a child is they make the decision what that child's name is going to be. And uh, some of you may not like your given names. Others of you are just fine with that, and that's great. Uh, but uh, many believe that a name carries great significance. We see it in Scripture. We see especially in the Old Testament where names have great significance. And even today, some of your names have great significance to your parents when they name you. Uh, but uh, the sons of Robert Lane might differ with you. Uh, Robert Lane uh, lived in New York. He had a son in 1958, a baby boy. And he came into the Lane family, and their dad, Robert, chose to name the boy Winner. W-I-N-N-E-R. Winner Lane. What a name. Can't fail with a name like that, can you? And uh, Winter Lane came along, and a few years later, another baby boy was born. And uh, Robert asked uh, the older daughter what they should name this little boy. And the, the daughter said, well, we have a winner. How about having a loser? <laughs> you knew that was coming, didn't you? And so Robert named his second baby boy Loser Lane, L-O-S-E-R. How tragic you would think to doom this little guy's future with a name like that. Uh, but really, contrary to all expectations, Loser Lane is the one who succeeded, uh, by, at least by societal standards. He graduated from college. He later became a police sergeant with the New York Police Department. And uh, today, nobody feels comfortable calling him Loser. So they call him Lou, which is a, a good way to do it, I guess. In contrast, the other brother with the can't-miss name, Winter, what happened to him? Well, the most noteworthy achievement of Winter Lane, who is now in his 60s, is the sheer length of his criminal record. <laughs> he has over 31 arrests and convictions for burglary, domestic violence, trespassing, resisting arrest, and much other mayhem. Much other mayhem. And it's a... A, it's a, an astonishing contrast when you think about it. Two brothers born into the same family, raised, I'm assuming, the same way, in the same environment, and yet they made choices and decisions in life, and based on those choices and decisions, we have a life well-lived and one not so well-lived, don't we? And so, obviously, in life, they face temptations. Both of them face many temptations, and one succumbed to his temptations. The other seemed to uh, combat them and live through it to uh, have a better life. Well, we're in the book of James. If you haven't already, take your copy of God's Word and turn to this little letter in the, towards the end of your Bibles. Uh, uh, James, right after the larger book of Hebrews. Uh, James, we are starting a... A journey through the book of James. It's a very short letter. Uh, you can read it quickly. It won't take you long. I won't say how many minutes because <laughs> my fact checkers will tell me it's not right. So that's okay. Just as long as you read it. And uh, so we come to James today and we've uh, done an introduction of James. Remember, James is the, the author of this book, was used by God. And James is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, the leader of the Church of Jerusalem. This is the earliest book of the New Testament. Uh, James was written, I believe, in the late 30s. Uh, other scholars believe it was written between 
between 44 and 49, because uh, James does not mention the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15, which he was made the final decision on, uh, on the gospel to the Gentiles, and we know that that council occurred in the AD 49, so we know that this book is earlier than that. And if you really go out there, we know it's earlier than AD 62, because that's when this James was martyred, was in AD 62. So I believe it was an early book. Uh, it's earlier than all the others. The nearest uh, New Testament book chronologically to the book of James is the book of Galatians in about 48 AD, about 48 uh, AD. And so there's a little bit of an introduction. We spent some time on introducing it. Uh, James is written to people who are already believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, some 15 times in this little letter, he refers to the readers as brethren, which is, means uh, not gender specific, it means men and women, male and female, and uh, oftentimes he calls them beloved brethren. We know uh, from scripture from the New Testament that that term is reserved for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So these people are already Christians, if you will. They have believed in Jesus for everlasting life, and so James is writing to them uh, to carry on with the next section of their life. Remember we talked about when we believe in Jesus Christ, that's a point action in time. Some of you can remember the exact day and time and date. I can't, but I know I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. It was in a certain time period. Uh, and so at that point, uh, Jesus Christ, his righteousness was imputed to us. In other words, it was credited to our account. We don't have any righteousness to give to God on our own. None is righteous, no, not one, the Bible tells us. Uh, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. So we need, in order to stand before a righteous, holy God, we need somebody else's righteousness, because we have none to offer to God. And so that's what Jesus Christ did on the cross in his death, burial, and resurrection. He intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. He is imputed, he is credited to our account a righteousness. We're talking about our position in Christ. Back there when we were saved, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, at that moment, whether you were five years old or like me, you were 28 or 29 years old, at that moment, you were saved, you had a position in Christ. Romans 6, 7, and 8 tell us about that position in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are positionally saved, we are freed from the very penalty of sin. The penalty of sin, of course, is death and separation from God himself. So James is concerned about the next segment of the believer's life, and that is called sanctification. In other words, we are growing in our Christianity. We are growing in Christ's likeness. We are being set apart. He tells us that tense of salvation. We are being saved from the very power of sin, from the very power of sin. And James is writing to instruct believers and down through the centuries, you and I, he's instructing us how to be saved from the power of sin. And there's a decision-making process. But we all know that, yes, we have a position in Christ, and we believe it by faith in what Jesus Christ has done in Romans. Uh, Paul declares that. But we also know that we have a condition of this physical life, don't we? And so we are all still sinners. That's why we need a great high priest. That's why we need an advocate, an intercessor in heaven is because just because we believed in Jesus at some time in the past, we are free from the penalty of sin. That doesn't mean we become perfect people. 
We are in the process of that perfection, which will not be realized until we enter heaven when we are glorified and we are saved from the very presence of sin. And so James is concerned about this big part in between here. And we are in this journey together. If you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for everlasting life, believed in him for everlasting life, as John 3.16 teaches us, and the book of John teaches us, basically, uh, then you are in this journey together. We are traveling in this journey called sanctification. And so James has been concerned about that. And last week we looked at the trials that come into everybody's life. These adversities, these difficulties, in fact, one of the translations of that word, maybe your version uses it, is instead of trials, they translate it as testing. And we know that testing makes us stronger, right? Uh, and I use the example of lifting weights and exercising. We, we exercise our muscles, we keep them in shape or try to, and when we do that, it takes resistance, doesn't it? And so our faith needs some resistance, and God allows this testing of our faith. And now James moves into, and in fact, he tells us there to rejoice in these various trials, knowing that these trials produce endurance. And eventually, we are moving towards maturity as a Christian in the perfect or fulfilled person in the abundant life. And in verse 12, he tells us, again, we touched on this last week, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Endurance, perseverance. For once he has been approved, you will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Uh, and so in verse 12, there is the promise, and there's two ways to look at that crown of life. Either it is a reward that God will get us, give us when we get to heaven. There's some evidence of that, because crowns usually refer to future rewards for living a life of faith. Uh, I believe here, another tra uh, understanding of this is that it's the abundant life given to a believer who loves the Lord Jesus Christ in the right here and now. That your life will be more abundant and you will be more encouraged. Your endurance will grow, your perseverance will grow, and your joy will be manifested in and through that. Uh, so these trials come into our life. Last week I used the U.S. Army War College's little acronym, B-U-C-A, BUCA which stands for volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And as we look at our lives, there's plenty of volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity, isn't there? And so uh, James is telling us that these trials, these testings will come in. They're not a surprise to God. We talked about his sovereignty last week, his absolute control of all things in all places at all times for the good of his people and for his glory. And that is an issue and an act of faith based upon the declared word of God about God's character. And I would encourage you again to get a grip on the sovereignty of God. Because without a grip on the faith that God is sovereign, that he's all good, that he's all loving, that he's all powerful, that he's moving everything to completion in his way for his glory and for the good of his people, you will struggle with the book of James. I will tell you that right up front. Uh, many have struggled with the book of James. But a mature person is patient in trials. Sometimes the trials are testings on the outside. When you think about it, trials and testings, adversity comes from external sources typically, doesn't it? And sometimes they are temptations on the inside. In this next section that Paul read for us this morning, James is going to address the issue of temptation in our life. When temptation strikes our lives, trials may be tests sent by God 
We see that in Scripture. Or they may be temptations sent by Satan. Satan seeks to destroy. He's like a roaring lion going to consume everything in his path. And he hates Christ. He hates the church. He hates believers. Do not let that bite. Know that each one of us essentially has a target on our back and without the protection of the Lord Jesus Christ, through the power of his Holy Spirit, through his archangels, we are all frail and ready to be gobbled up by the evil one, the hater of our souls. And so uh, we are encouraged in our own fallen nature. Again, I emphasize that, yes, we have a position in Christ. We are saved for eternity because what he did on the cross but our flesh is not redeemed yet. It will be when we enter heaven at one point. These bodies will be redeemed. But we have this battle going on that Paul relates to us in the book of Romans about this battle with the spirit and with our flesh. And since our flesh is not redeemed, I want what I want when I want it, right? And so uh, there is a certain selfishness, a self-servingness that we all are uh, uh, plagued with in that sense. So temptations on the inside, and James deals with that in this section. And so why did James connect the two? Okay, he's talking about trials at the beginning of chapter 1, and now he goes into this whole issue of temptation. Why does he connect it? What is the relationship between our trials or our testing, our adversity, and the temptations within? Simply this, if we're not careful, the testings on the outside may become temptations on the inside. When our circumstances are difficult, and all of us have faced difficult circumstances, we may find ourselves complaining against God, questioning his love, and resisting his will. At this point, Satan provides us with an opportunity to escape the difficulty. The opportunity is temptation. So in other words, when we're in difficult, oppressive trials or testing, the temptation is, is to slip out from under that and somehow save ourselves. And that may be circumventing the will of God. <coughs> Hebrews 4.15 tells us this about temptation. For we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus Christ, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And of course, it's referring back to Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus was in the wilderness and Satan tempted him. And he was without sin, even though he has experienced the same temptations that you and I face, all those things. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is a great uh, verse to be aware of, if not to memorize, if you struggle in certain areas of temptation in your life. He, Paul tells us there, no temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common to man. Isn't that interesting? All of us experience this. And God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Okay, good verse to remember when those temptations come, which they will, by the way. James tells us that, and Paul tells us, and the New Testament tells us that temptation is our common experience of all human beings, Christians included, <coughs> And here in this chapter, chapter 1, verse 13, he says, God cannot be tempted by evil, and he does not tempt us, because that's the argument that James is circumventing, if you will, that people will blame God. Well, God, you tempted me. You allowed me this thing, and now it's your fault. And we'll get to that in a moment, the distinct source of temptation. 
uh, we're all in danger of falling under the pressures and the attack of our trials, but we are also in danger of falling <clears throat> to, to the, before the attractions and pleasures of temptation. And just as a wrong reaction to testing will obstruct spiritual growth and maturity, so will a wrong approach and response to temptation uh, will also do that. James outlines the source of our temptation here. There's a distinct source. He's also going to talk about the downward spiral of temptation and then the divine solution. Isn't it wonderful that God doesn't call us to anything without providing the power, the strength, and the resources to respond to his command? The wonderful thing, you see it all throughout Scripture. A distinct source of temptation we find in verses 13 through 14. Verse 13, uh, James is making the argument that don't blame God. You know, we want to blame somebody else. Remember, that's what Adam did when uh, he was confronted in the Garden of Eden. Uh, you know, God, this woman that you gave me made me sin. You know, oh boy. You know, how often do we do that? Or some variation of that. God tests us, but he does not tempt us. Let's read verse 13 again. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. And that is a statement uh, that you cannot argue against. The divine, uh, the distinct source of temptation is not the divine being. In verse 14, it says, do not blame your own lusts. Look again at verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. We think of sin as a single act, typically, but God sees it as a process. There is a process that we go through. There's many examples in Scripture. You can do a study of the life of David and his, uh, uh, his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah and his denial. You see this process is pretty consistent in Scripture. In fact, it began with Adam. He committed one act of sin, and yet that one act of sin brought sin, death, and judgment to the whole human race. You know, it, it's an amazing when you go back and read that. James described this process in four stages. Listen carefully. First of all, in verse 14, stage number one is desire. And that appeals to our emotions. That appeals to our emotions. We live in a very emotional age, don't we? When you listen to people, it's how I feel is the first thing out of their mouth. When they're interviewed, it's uh, how I feel, whether it's on popular media or wherever. And so the first stage of this process is desire. The word lust means any kind of desire, not just limited to sexual passions, but it's any kind of desire. Uh, the normal desires of life God gave to us so we would survive. You know. Uh, these are not simple. Without these desires, we could not function. If we didn't feel hunger and thirst, uh, we would not eat or drink, and we would die. And without fatigue, the body would never rest and eventually wear out. Uh, human sexuality is a normal desire, and without it, the human race would not have continued. We wouldn't be here, okay? It is when we want to satisfy these desires outside of God's will that we get into trouble. Eating is normal, gluttony is sin. Uh, sleep is normal, laziness is sin, and so on. And, and sex is normal in marriage, but outside of marriage, it is sin. The secret is constant control of this, this emotional response. These desires must be our servants, not our masters. That is one of the keys 
Uh, we can do these things through Jesus Christ. Uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, now referred to as crew, used to have an illustration, which I don't know, young people don't understand anymore, but Bill Bright used to use the illustration of a train engine and then a coal car. We don't, you know, we don't know what a coal car is anymore. And a caboose. Who knows what a caboose is? Only people of a certain age. They've disappeared, haven't they? But there used to be a car at the end of the train following along. And he used the example that the, the engine was the, <clears throat> was the facts. What God reveals in his word, the facts. The coal car that fuels and believes in these facts is faith. So you have facts is the power, faith keeps feeding it, and then the caboose is our feeling. Now, I've never seen a caboose hold a massive freight train. Have you? No. It's always the engine, the power. And so the facts of the word of God and our faith believing those things and finally our emotion in the correct order there. The second stage we see in this uh, distinct source of temptation is deception. We find that in verse 14 and verse 16. Look at verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. He's warning them that even Christians can be deceived, and that has to do with our intellect. We talk about our emotions and our desires. Here it's deception. We can be deceived intellectually. No temptation appears as a temptation. Have you ever understood that? Temptations come in, and they are cloaked, if you will. It always seems more alluring than it is. That's why Adam and Eve, it was alluring to them. They believed the deception that Satan used. And James in verse 14 used two illustrations from the sporting world. Look at verse 14 in there. He says, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own, uh, excuse me, his own lust. There's two pictures here. The word, the verb drawn away carries with it the idea of baiting a trap, baiting a trap. John's brother and I, he would run a trap line in the winters over in Montana and I'd go with him, we'd snowshoe and check his trap line, and he would set these snares uh, for different animals, but he always baited them. He had the idea that there was a bait in the trap or somehow to cover uh, the idea that there was a trap there. That's the picture here. The second was enticed. The original Greek here means to bait a hook. The hunter and the fisherman, or the trapper and the fisherman, used bait to attract and catch their prey. Remember when my grandfather Smith taught me how to fish in uh, the uh, high streets in Colorado? And I was too lazy to put the bait on the hook, so I thought, I'll just throw the hook in. Those fish aren't so intelligent. You know, they're dumb, dumb as a rock, you know? But guess what? They never fit on a bare hook. And that's the idea here. They, the fisherman baits his hook to attract and catch the fish. No animal is deliberately going to step into a trap, and no fish will knowingly bite a naked hook. The idea is to hide the trap and hide the hook. And that's what temptation does with our intellect. We are deceived if we're not careful. Temptation always carries the promise of a bait, of a fulfillment that appeals to our natural desires. Uh, it's, we just don't recognize it's going to bring sorrow and punishment. The bait is that which is exciting to the flesh is what it is. You know, you think about Lot in the Old Testament. He would never have moved to Sodom and Gomorrah he'd seen, had he not seen the well-watered plains of Jordan. And when David looked at his neighbor's wife at Bathsheba, uh, he didn't see the tragic consequences that this baby would die, the murder of Uriah, 
and <clears throat> the violation of his daughter Tamar. And so David didn't see that in that moment. The hook was baited, the trap was set, and David stepped right into it. And we are in the same danger as that. And we know that Jesus was tempted by Satan. And of course, Satan used the same strategy with the Lord Jesus Christ there in the wilderness. And but Jesus responded differently, didn't he? He always responded with the word of God. Every one of the four temptations, he said, it is written. And he would quote scripture correctly and accurately. And so when you know your Bible, you can detect the temptation and the faith and deal with it decisively. And so we see there that the distinct source of temptation is within ourselves. Satan can tempt us, but our flesh will tempt us also. And so secondly, there's a downward spiral of temptation. And here we see a genealogy of temptation. He changes the picture to one now of like natural childbirth in verses 15 and 16. There is a downward spiral. There's a spiral of conception to death. Look at verse 15. And when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. I mentioned those four stages. The third stage here is disobedience in verse 15. And that has to do with our will, with our decision-making process. We have a desire. <clears throat> we make a decision. Uh, our intellect makes a decision. And, and the will is what comes out. This disobedience, we have moved from emotions and intellect, deception to the will. James changed the picture here from hunting and fishing to the birth of a baby. And desire conceives a method for taking the bait. And will the will approves of these acts and the result is sin. And whether we feel it or not, we are hooked and trapped when we get to this point of the will in this temptation. Christian living is a matter of the will. Uh, if you live long enough and been a believer in Jesus Christ long enough, you recognize that many days it is a decision of the will that we are believers, not of feelings. Uh, I often hear people say that, well, I don't feel like reading my Bible or I don't feel like coming to church on Sundays, being with other people. Uh, but adults, mature people operate on the function of their will. They act because it is right no matter how they Feel. And so Christians can fall into temptation when we follow these stages, if you will, of <clears throat> emotion, intellect, and will. And then stage number four, this birth is not a pretty thing, this conception that has occurred, because in verse 15 it says disobedience gives birth to death, birth to death, not life. Now remember that these people that James is writing to are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. They are secure in their everlasting life with him. They will be in heaven. We will meet them there someday if you're a believer in Christ. So when he talks of death here, he is talking about the potential for believers' lives to be shortened because of disobedience and being out of the will of God. We know that from numerous places, but probably the one that strikes us most is 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when we talk about the Lord's table. And he's warning the Corinthian believers because, remember, they were abusing the Lord's table, communion. They weren't approaching it correctly. And he tells them in verse 30, for this reason, many of you are weak and sick and a number sleep. I'm not doing that. That is a metaphor for physical death. Uh, God will decide that, hey, you are beyond the limit here. It is time to bring you to heaven. And so there's this downward spiral of temptation. And so whenever we're faced with temptation, 
as alluring as it may seem to get us out from under whatever trial we're going through, uh, we need to get our eyes off the bait and the hook and instead of look at, and look at the consequences of what God is going to do. So what is the solution? God doesn't just leave it there with the thou shalt not, but here is the solution, the divine solution for temptation. First of all, in verse 17, God is faithful and good. Here we go back to the sovereignty of God, to his character, what the Bible declares about him. Look at verse 17 again. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of light, with whom there is no variation or shifting set shadow. God is faithful and good. James gives us four facts about the goodness of God here. Four facts. First fact, number one, God gives only good gifts. God gives only good gifts. Everything good in this world comes from God. It did not, if it did not come from God, it is not good. It's the reverse of that saying. If it comes from God, it must be good, even if we don't see the goodness immediately. Paul's thorn in the flesh is an example given to him by God. It seemed like a very strange gift, yet it had a tremendous blessing to him in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Fact number two, the way God gives it is good. The way he God gives is good. We can translate that second clause, the act of giving, if you will. It is possible for someone to give a gift in a manner that is less than loving uh, on the human level, but yet God uh, never diminishes the value of his gift. He always gives it in grace and as a blessing in his good, loving, gracious manner. <clears throat> he gives uh, what he gives and how he gives are both good. We have to settle that in our mind. Fact number three, he gives constantly, constantly, even while we sleep. That's why oftentimes I'll pray for myself and for you all that we would have eyes to see his blessings, maybe spiritual eyes, but that we would recognize that we would rest in the fact that God gives constantly. That phrase coming down there in verse 14, or verse 15, excuse me, uh, or excuse me, 16 and 17. I'm way behind myself here. It says, every gift is from above, coming down from the Father of light. That is a <clears throat> present participle for you grammarians out there. It keeps on coming down is the idea. It never stops. It keeps coming down. God does not just give occasionally like, stingy, like some stingy person. He gives constantly, even when we do not see his gifts. He is sending them. How do we know this? Because he tells us so, and for the believer in Christ, we are to believe in him. Fact number four, God does not change. That whole picture of, of this creator of the universe, of all the planets and the stars and the sun and the moon and all the lights of heaven, it tells us there are no shadows with the Father of lights. It is impossible for God to change. He cannot change for the worse because he is holy. He cannot change for the better because he is already perfect. The light of the sun varies. The earth changes, but the sun itself is but the sun itself is still shining. If shadows come between us and the Father, he did not cause them. He is the unchanging God. This means that we should never question his love or doubt his goodness or difficult when difficulties and temptations appear in our lives. So there's a negative and positive in this, this passage that James has written for us. 
there's a barrier, and that barrier is against temptation. It's a negative one, the judgment of God. Uh, the fact that God is a judging God is holy and perfect and desires the best for us. The second barrier is positive, the goodness of God. Uh, the goodness of God, that he has carried out his perfect plan. And in verse 18, uh, God transforms us. He's reminding the readers here, reminding us in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we'd be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. He's talking about our initial salvation that he brought us forth. This is another birth. Remember the birth of temptation up above that led to death? This is the birth, the conception that leads to life. Note the characteristics. Number one, it's divine. We don't save ourselves. We don't, aren't saved by works and trying to be a good person, but we are saved by what Jesus Christ has done. Remember back in John chapter 3, Nicodemus came to Jesus, and he thought he had to re-enter his mother's womb to be born again, but he was wrong. This is not a birth of the flesh. This is a spiritual birth that's from above. It's the work of God. We don't generate our own human birth, and we certainly don't generate our own spiritual birth. When we believe in Jesus Christ for everlasting life, it is God who performs the miracle. Salvation by grace alone. He is gracious in that. We don't earn it or deserve it. God gave us a spiritual birth because of his own grace and his own will and his desire. Uh, no one can be born again because of our relatives, our resolutions, or our religion. A new birth is the work of God opening our eyes to the truth. And if we went around the room and listened to everybody's testimony, we would see that the people who believed in Jesus for everlasting life, it was a moment of miraculous uh, intervention in their lives which brought us to faith. And thirdly, it is through God's word. Just as human birth requires two parents, spiritual birth, divine birth has two parents, the word of God and the spirit of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, John tells us in chapter 3, verse 6, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And number four, it's the finest birth possible. It's a wonderful birth. What kind of first fruits. Remember, James is writing to Jewish believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's a lot of connection, a lot of Jewish phraseology in here. And he's talking about first fruits of his creatures. And first fruits would be meaningful to these Jewish believers. In the Old Testament, the Jewish people brought the first fruits to the Lord as an expression of devotion and obedient. Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all your increase. Proverbs 3 9. Of all the creatures God had in his universe, Christians are the very highest and the finest in that sense, what God has done. We share his nature. Uh, for this reason, it is beneath our dignity to accept Satan's bait and desire sinful things. A higher birth means a higher life, if you will. Uh, by granting us this new birth, God declares that we cannot accept the old birth. Throughout the Bible, Jesus Christ, have you ever looked at this and thought about this? Throughout the Bible, Jesus Christ rejects the firstborn and accepts the secondborn. He accepted Abel, but not Cain. Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau. He rejects your first birth, no matter how noble it is in the eyes of the other human beings. And he now announces that we all need this second birth, this spiritual birth. It is the experience of the new birth that helps us overcome temptation when it enters our life. When we let our old nature from this first birth, the physical being that we have take over, we will fail. That's James's point here. 
We received our old nature, the flesh, from Adam, and he was a failure. But if we yield to the new nature, we will succeed, that new nature from Christ. He is our victor. I read one illustration about uh, one commentator's Sunday school teacher when he was a boy. And his Sunday school teacher explained the matter in simple terms. He said, uh, two men live in my life. Two men live in my life. The old Adam and Jesus. When temptation knocks at the door, somebody's got to answer the door. If I let Adam answer it, I will sin. So I send Jesus to answer it, and he always wins. He always wins. I was looking uh, for another study that I'm planning on the occurrence of the little phrase, in Christ. In Christ. Of course, the Apostle Paul uses it many, many, many times. Uh, in Christ. And I was thinking of Ephesians, uh, where are we at here? Ephesians chapter 2, that great passage about our justification, verses 8 and 9, we all know this probably, where he says, for by grace you've been saved, that initial justification, that initial imputation of Christ's righteousness, for by grace you've been saved through faith that is not in yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. But here's the sanctification part. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. For those of us in Christ Jesus, it's more than this individual relationship with God, but it is this community of believers from the day of Pentecost till Christ takes us all to heaven. And we are part of this bigger thing. We are part, if you're part of Grace Point Church, it's not about the individual, it is in a sense, but it's more about this collection, this community of faith that we have here. The new nature must be fed with the Word of God. That's why it's key and critical that you read the Word of God. It might be able to strong, fight the strong fight against the temptation that comes our way. So we think about those names, winner and loser lane, about those two lives and the contrast of those two lives. And think about the choices we make and the things that come into our life, whether they be the trials on the outside or the temptations on the inside. And we need to remember that we will either win the crown, as Jason James 1.12 says, that we will experience the abundant Christian life, or they will find a coffin. Which will it be is the question. This morning we are going to observe the Lord's table together. And again, I'm just thinking of that phrase, in Christ, and what God has done for us in Christ. And uh, we come together corporately, or communally, if you will, in this expression of the body of Christ, and the men that we're going to serve if they would come up at this time. And uh, this is uh, an observance we're commanded of by the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the central passage is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and the instruction for the Lord's table, remember, is based on the Jewish Passover feast, uh, when the Jews in the Old Testament were looking forward the coming of the Messiah, the promised one who would come and save his people. And, uh, of course, Jesus fulfilled that in Luke 22. We see that, that he took the, observed the Passover, but Jesus was the fulfillment. And then he taught the Apostle Paul, and Paul told us that, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, in that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took the bread. And so the bread and the cup or this is a memorial time to help us remember, to remind us that twice in this passage Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. 
And so I'm always personally challenged, what do I remember about the Lord Jesus Christ? Because I don't want this just to be a ritual. Remember, a ritual is defined as something we do time and time again without any thought. That's a ritual. But this observance, this memorial time, we are engaged our brains, engage our minds to think about what Jesus Christ has done, is doing, and will do. There's this, we were saved from the very penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. We will be saved from the very presence of sin if you have trusted in Jesus Christ for everlasting life. And so this is the time together that we proclaim that we believe in Jesus and that we are going to be gathered up with him someday and he will come again. And so Paul instructs us here and he tells us, uh, and he took bread, he gave thanks, and then they distributed the bread. So I'm going to ask Todd to give thanks for the bread this morning. 